All right, so like the last talk, I wish I had three hours at least to go through all these things, but I'm going to have to do a lot of flybys. So as always, if you have questions about something that I wasn't clear on or you'd like me to go deeper with, that's what hopefully we can do in the Q&A for a bit. So again, um, we're going to look at LGBTQ plus issues specifically uh, as it relates to the relationships that you have at your school. And um, again, I'm going to give a lot of foundational principles here, which hopefully we can flesh out an application uh, in the Q&A. And so to frame this discussion, uh, when we think about LGBTQ plus identities, as, um, I want us to think about this discussion in the realm of authority. And what I mean by that is, what is our ultimate authority to define our identity? and to determine what identities and actions are morally acceptable. Another question could be, what is your deepest guide for your life? Uh, when you have a lot of questions about, is this right? Should I do this? How do I think about myself? How do I identify? What is the baseline foundation to say, this is where the buck stops? And I want to give you three possible guides or authorities that we can ultimately rest upon. The first uh, authority could be human rationality or logic. This, this authority is essentially your own ability to determine what makes sense to you. Uh, you really are your ultimate authority here. Uh, you listen to a proposition like love is love or trans women are women. And now it's up to you to decide whether that statement is true or false, good or bad. This is what centuries of enlightenment thinking and philosophy have taught us that the human brain, our minds, are the most reliable and final authorities for matters of truth. So that's the first option we have for a guide. The second option that we have for ultimate authority or guide is our feelings and our experiences. At times, our logic may lead us to certain conclusions that seem contrary to what feels right. And our feelings are so often shaped by what we have either firsthand or secondhand experienced. So logically, you may conclude, even based on the talk that I just gave, that marriage and sex make sense to be limited to one man and one woman exclusively. And that was, believe it or not, the majority thinking here in this country up until recent decades. And so what changed? Well, perhaps you yourself experience same-sex attraction, or you have a loved one who is in a same-sex relationship. And the result of acting on those desires seems to lead to happiness and fulfillment in life. You've also perhaps experienced hate from people who have sought to harm you or those you love simply because of your desires or attractions. Or let's take a 20-year-old man who wants to become a woman through hormone therapy and surgery. Logically, you may conclude that this man is male and no amount of hormones or surgeries will change that underlying reality, but your feelings and your experiences look at the way this man has suffered. You've seen the pain he goes through simply by looking at the mirror in the morning and seeing an unfamiliar face. And your feelings tell you that it would be wrong to not let him identify as a woman if that would alleviate his suffering. 
Feelings and experiences are incredibly persuasive. And especially in our current culture, feelings and experiences tend to be where we rest our ultimate authority, even over logic or human reason. But there is a third option for our final authority, an option that you won't hear much discussed at your schools and even to our own ears may sound like the least obvious place for our final authority. But that third option is the Bible. The Bible is the final authority that we look to to know what is true, what is good, what is right. And here's why this is so difficult for us. Because even the majority of Christians who would say with their lips that the Bible is the final authority are still in practice relying on their own logic and feelings more than they are the Bible. Consider the fact that even our willingness often to accept or receive the teaching of the Bible must first pass the test of whether it is logically and feels like the right thing to believe. Instead of believing it and allowing our logic and feelings to submit to that reality, the Bible must first submit to our logic and feelings. This means that when somebody says, when the Bible says something that feels illogical, that seems wrong to our experience, what we must do is submit our feelings and our experiences and even our reasoning to a deeper authority to which those things submit. Many will protest and say that this idea that the Bible is the final authority is circular reasoning because the Bible is the final authority. We believe that because it says that it's the final authority and that's why we believe it. And you might say, well, that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But the reality is, why do we trust our feelings as the final authority? Because our feelings tell us they are the final authority. Why do we trust our logic? Because our logic tells us it's the final authority. Something has to be ultimate. When we talk about ultimate authority, ultimate guides, it will always be the same reason because it says so. And there's nothing that it answers to. Something has to answer to nothing but itself. There has to be some starting point, some final authority to which we appeal. And as Christians, we believe that that is the Bible because it is the authoritative revelation, the revealing of God's word to us. And to say that to believe the Bible, it must some way pass some logical or emotional test, what we are doing in that moment is actually usurping God's authority, robbing him of his authority and saying, you, your Bible, must pass my test, my test of whether this feels right or seems right to me. Now this, again, this is a problem we all struggle with. And this is something we struggle with because we're born as offspring of Adam and Eve. And our first parents did the same exact thing with God's word. God clearly revealed the authoritative message, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know from the story that they ate from it. <laughs> that was a problem. So they, but the problem actually started before they ate. The problem started when the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say? He started questioning God's authority. And the problem with Adam and Eve is they did not immediately say, thus saith the Lord. What they said is, well, you know what? Let me, let me judge Satan's words. And I'll, I'll compare his message to God's message. And I'll be the final arbiter as to which message I will follow. 
And so really they became their own final authority. And when they did that, the serpent had them right where he wanted them. They started relying on their own logic and their own feelings. We must remember that the final authority is thus saith the Lord, not thus saith my own logic or feelings. But as Adam and Eve's offspring, we have inherited the same fundamental problem with God's authority. Now, this was a long introduction on authority, but it's essential when we talk about issues that I know are so deep in our experience, and especially in a world where there are so many people claiming authority on these issues, and their messages are prevailing. Even in our churches, it can be very difficult to wade through these issues. But if we don't, if we're not clear on that starting point, then everything else will be thrown out of order. We won't be thinking about these things from a solid foundation. This is why even many Christians today are caving on biblical truth because in practice, the word of God is not their final authority. Now you might ask the question, why is it that our logic and our feelings seem to be contradicting the authority of scripture in many places? Well, there's at least two things to say there. First of all, it's important to note that even before the fall, humanity needed God's word. We needed God's word even before we had sin in our lives. But all the more now, in the fall, where we have corrupt hearts, even corrupt minds, we need to realize that these are not reliable guides for our lives. Yes, our logic and our feelings often still comport to reality. There's still many ways in which our logic and feelings do guide us in truth, but they cannot be ultimately relied upon as infallible. They will lead you astray because our minds and our emotions have all been deeply impacted by the fall. And so, even though our logic and our feelings do express the wonder of God's good creation and image bearing, uh, they are not to be final authorities. The second thing we need to consider here is the factor that... um, Again, we talked about this idea that as God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, we as image bearers reflect him within community. And what this means is that by design, God created our feelings and our logic and our reasoning to be impacted and influenced by the people and the culture and the communities that we surround ourselves with. And so what this means is that in a healthy environment, This capacity to be influenced by others is a very good thing. This is why if you grew up in a home and a church and a community that is teaching and showing you what the Christian life is all about, you are getting positively influenced in very good ways. This is going to help serve your Christian life, help serve the way you think through and experience life. But of course, in a fallen world, this capacity to be influenced is a great detriment and can have negative influences as sin and brokenness and and false messages impact and influence what we believe, uh, what we determine about what is true and good, how we experience life, how we come to God's word. This is why entire generations tend to adopt similar modes of thinking and ways of believing. Your grandparents' generation probably has many beliefs and commitments that are vastly different than yours and your generation. 
Some of those values are the product of just living life, having a longer life and learning things along the way. But much of it is also the philosophies and the cultural norms that ruled their day versus the cultural norms that now rule your day. So consider that when we think about the fact that with each new generation, we see that the number of people in each generation identifying as LGBTQ plus is doubling. A Gallup poll in 2021 showed that amongst baby boomers, 2.6% identify as LGBTQ+. Gen X, 4%. Millennials, 10%. Gen Z, 20%. There's a lot of reasons why this great increase is occurring, but we can't discount the nature of influence or social contagion aspect of this, that your generation is seeing, uh, you've grown up seeing LGBTQ plus identity in a way that is very different than the way previous generations have thought about these issues. Gen Z has grown up seeing these things as a badge of honor, as a way to find freedom from the suffering and anxiety of depression, as a way to garner favor from those in authority and as a means of finding meaningful community and connection with others, particularly online. Along with this, uh, Gen Z is perhaps the first generation to have their greatest influence not be their parents, but their churches, their communities, uh, or, or not be their parents, churches, or communities close to them, but instead, the greatest influence for your generation, by and large, is people online, people on the internet, many people that perhaps we have never even met. Consider that before 2007, there was only one gender clinic in the entire United States. Now there are over 300. On top of that, before 2007, there were zero studies conducted for girls experiencing gender dysphoria because girls were not seeking help for this type of distress. And gender dysphoria was largely limited to boys who started showing symptoms as early as two to four years old. Now the vast majority of children seeking help from these 299 new gender clinics are teenage girls who are experiencing a newly coined term, rapid onset gender dysphoria. And this type of sudden explosion of new cases is not unheard of. The majority of the accompanying signs for rapid onset gender dysphoria have alarming similarities to anorexia. Not only is the obvious body dysmorphia a similarity, but also um, this idea of the fact that there is a social component to this. That girls in particular uh, who are most affected by anorexia are also most affected right now by rapid onset gender dysphoria. And that's because God has made girls, by and large, with an increased ability to empathize with the sufferings of others. And that is obviously a wonderful thing that God created in females, by and large. But it can become dangerous when you so empathize with others that you begin to take their infirmities onto yourself. And this is why you'll see Entire groups of girls starting to struggle with anorexia all at the same time. In a similar way, you start to see entire groups of girls starting to identify with rapid onset gender dysphoria. Along with that, both conditions find reinforcements for their beliefs on online communities. Just as there are countless groups and forums online for the trans community where you can find all the reinforcement you need to go forward with a new identity, 
So too, there are countless groups online uh, called pro-Anna and pro-Mia for pro-anorexia and pro-bulimia. And in these groups, eating disorders are seen as badges of honor. You are trained how to look like you are eating more than you actually are in front of your parents so as not to create suspicion. And the more extreme your behavior in these groups, the more glory you receive. So too, in pro-trans groups, you are trained how to display symptoms to a doctor so that in your first consultation, your doctor will prescribe to you puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. You are also counseled how to retell your story with your family so that if your parents do not embrace your new identity, you are able to tell a story of how they are toxic and they need to be separated from you. On top of this, uh, Gen Z has also been trained by your teachers, uh, by those in authority over you to want to protect you at all costs. And obviously that is, that is a very good thing. Uh, you know, every generation, uh, our parents did things that are different. I, I'm an older millennial and we got the participation trophies. Uh, we were told that we were great. We were told that you're, you can do anything you want. And, um, and so we were labeled as the most narcissistic generation uh, to date. Maybe, hopefully you don't see too much of that in me. Um, but your generation was trained to be protected. Your generation uh, was seen that bullying obviously is a terrible thing. I've experienced bullying, it's awful. And so there were a lot of anti-bullying campaigns, uh, stranger danger, any type of negative, negative emotion, your generation was sought to be protected from those things. But maybe you know, maybe you grew up in a home like this, or maybe you know someone who grew up in a home that always tried to keep everything clean. Uh, there was never any germs. Uh, you had uh, antiseptic things everywhere, soap on, on every corner. And my guess is if you grew up in that home, or you know someone who grew up in that home, you were sick all the time. Why is that? Well, it's because your immune system was not given the ability to learn how to mature and grow through facing disease, facing bacteria. And so you weren't given the ability to grow in a similar way. Gen Z has been, in, a, in, a, in an effort to protect, has actually experiencing alarming rates of anxiety and depression that are unprecedented in previous generations. And I believe there's a very similar reason here. With the desire to protect, your generation has actually not been given the opportunity to face those hard things and grow through them and learn the resilience needed to go through life. And it's in this context of overwhelming numbers of depression and anxiety that an LGBTQ plus identity has emerged as a powerful means of dealing with this. There are many tragic stories of young students who deeply wrestled with struggles and their parents and teachers showed them little attention. But as soon as they came out as trans, everyone rushed to support them. What message does this send? Are you desperate? Do you need help? Take on this identity and the floodgates will open to you. Now this does not mean that everyone who identifies as LGBTQ plus is merely using that as a way to cope with depression or anxiety. I'm not saying that. But it is one explanation for the exponential increase that we're seeing in your generation. 
So with all of that as a background, as a foundation for understanding our current context, I want to spend the rest of this session diving into how we think about um, either ourselves or those we love who may experience same-sex attraction, uh, may wrestle with their gender identity, uh, many other types of struggles that could be in this category of LGBTQ+. And I, I want to consider two situations. The first situation is your friend who does not know Jesus comes out to you. What should you do? How do you biblically respond to your friend? And then second scenario, your friend does know Jesus and they come out to you. What should you do? How should you biblically understand and respond to your friend? So first of all, your unbelieving friend comes to you. One of the first questions I would want to know is, do they know that you're a Christian? If they do know that you're a Christian, then most likely you have built up a lot of relational capital with them in order for them to trust you with this knowledge. Because most people still assume that Christians are opposed to LGBTQ plus community. And we have to ask the question, is the relational capital that you've built that makes them willing to share with you, is that capital, is that relationship on a solid ground? Perhaps they've already put out feelers to see how do you respond to certain questions or issues. Did you speak the truth in love? Or did you try to just avoid the topic altogether? Or did you maybe even cave on the truth in some way? Another way you may have built up relational capital is simply by showing yourself to be a compassionate, trustworthy, faithful friend who's been there for them in the past. More than your words, they've seen your life. They see how you genuinely care for people. And they know that if they share this with you, you will respectfully respond to them. Perhaps as well, they see Jesus in your life and they're intrigued. They can tell that you're different in some way and they can't put their finger on it, but they want to know more and wonder if you might have something that they need. Or perhaps they're testing you. They don't know how you'll respond, but they are ready to burn bridges if you don't respond the way they want you to. So how should you understand your friend and what they're going through? Well, here are a few things to keep in mind. First of all, the fact that they are coming out to you means that in some form or another, there is real suffering going on in their lives. You don't know how much of that suffering perhaps even came at the hands of others who mistreated them because of their experience. As a result of knowing that, you want to thank them for being willing to share with you and reaffirm your love for them, your care for them, and your desire to hear more about what this has been like for them. As a general rule, people are always more willing to hear from you when you first have shown a great interest in being willing to listen to them. Secondly, for the most part, it's safe to assume that unbelievers are going to see these desires and experiences as core to their identity, meaning same-sex attraction or transgender feelings are not just experiences that they have. These things are core to who they are as a person. That to deny these desires would be to deny a core part of your identity. And so it's understandable that to reject this label or desires would feel like you're rejecting them. And it's important to recognize how they're understanding uh, a rejection of certain experiences or behaviors as core to their identity. Next, we have to remember that if we are concerned that they should not live out of that identity, uh, 
that concern of this particular issue is actually a secondary matter to a much larger problem. The main problem your friend faces is not that they identify as gay or transgender. The main problem is that they are still dead in their sins, lost and without true hope in the world. They are still on a road to destruction and they will face their maker and their judge one day without an advocate. This is the primary concern from which all other issues stem from. And so if the primary concern is one of their relationship to Christ, then in one sense, finding out that your friend identifies as gay or transgender really doesn't change anything about the way that you are relating to them. This is just one other area of struggle and sin in their life amongst many. So how you relate to your friend who maybe abuses alcohol or watches pornography, or cheats on their boyfriend or girlfriend, or cheats on their tests, or uses the Lord's name in vain. Whatever the sin is in their lives, they're all the outworking of a heart that is still fundamentally opposed to God and his law. We should not expect non-Christians to act as Christians. And at the same time, we also know from Romans 1 that even though they deny God with their words and actions, All people still know God to be true, but they are suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. This means that you do have something to appeal to. And so just like any other relationship with an unbeliever, you should be praying and asking for open doors, opportunities to show and to speak the love of Jesus to them. So we, you may ask the question, do you, do you tell your friend outright that you think that their life and their life choices are not in accord with God's will for them? With many issues, this requires wisdom with an unbelieving friend. In general, if you have a growing relationship with your friend and they know that you love Jesus, they will want to know what you think about this specific area in their life. And so you can wait for them to ask you what you think, and you can give an honest, loving response about what you believe about God's intent for creation, his design, and his standards. In that, you can also show yourself, you might even share with them, you know, I myself wrestle with struggles of a sexual nature. Maybe you yourself experience same-sex attraction. Maybe you have a struggle with pornography. You can talk about the fact that you're working these things through with Jesus right now that you're still on the road and the path of repentance and growth, that we are still in need of the blood of Jesus as what Paul would say is the chief of sinners. We aren't cherry picking one issue here. Now, when it comes to a friend who identifies as transgender or non-binary, you may be faced with the difficult proposition of being asked to use their preferred pronouns. And this too requires wisdom, but in general, I would advocate for an approach that seeks whenever possible to avoid using pronouns altogether, using their name only. Again, if you have a strong relationship with this person and they ask you specifically about your convictions regarding this issue, um, maybe you have an opportunity then to, to say what you believe and say how you want to stay in relationship with this person, but what your convictions are leading you to. Now, I recognize that for you to be faithful to Christ uh, as a friend to someone who identifies with the LGBTQ plus community, this may not end well. Your faithfulness to Jesus may mean the relationship ends poorly with them unable to accept your approach. And that can be really difficult. And for a variety of reasons, you may struggle with that prospect. 
And of course, we don't want to give unnecessary offense when it is not needed. But we can't escape the reality that the gospel is offensive to those who are perishing. It is called the aroma of death. And if they hate you, always remember, it's because they hated Jesus first. And you are a representative of him. But take heart, brothers and sisters, because Jesus came not for the healthy. He came for the sick. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And Jesus came to save many men and women who right now identify as LGBTQ+. There are many sheep in their midst that Jesus has yet to draw into the fold. Because when the good shepherd calls out their name by name, the sheep hear his voice and respond. And so you can take comfort that ultimately it is not within your ability to call them to life. You ultimately are not the good shepherd. You represent the shepherd. You witness to him. You tell them of the shepherd, but he is the one who has to call them. He's asking you to be a faithful witness to him. You are the one who sets the table, but Jesus is the one who has to ultimately bring them. Jesus is the one who brings them to the feast. So that's the scenario for the unbeliever. But what about someone who says that they follow Jesus and they come out to you and identify as gay or transgender? And I recognize that, again, that may be some of you in this room today. And this, this uh, situation requires a lot of wisdom, a lot of nuance. And one of the most important questions we have to start with is, what do they mean when they say gay or transgender? If someone says, I'm gay, that can mean a whole host of different things. So what might that mean? And based on what you mean by that, how should you respond as a friend? And so I'm going to look at, at a few different scenarios here. Here's the first scenario. Saying I'm gay, trans, or non-binary means that I'm living and acting according to this identity. I'm pursuing a same-sex relationship. I'm pursuing some form of transitioning. I'm living out of an identity that is incongruent with my biological sex. On top of that, this is not an area that your friend considers sinful. They are doing nothing to struggle against this. They are pursuing it wholeheartedly, believing that God affirms these choices as good. If this is the case, your brother and sister are living in unrepentant sin. And as a brother and sister in Christ, you must call them to that reality and call them to repent of that sin, to turn from their sin, to look to Jesus and seek after new obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there's one caveat here that I think is important to discern is whether or not this person is a brand new believer or is this someone who has been professing believer for a long time. Uh, someone who is new to Christ may not understand why this would be sinful and if, they lived, but, and if they lived out of this identity for many years as an unbeliever, it's not gonna be a quick shift for them most likely. And so there's a level of patience and understanding that you will walk more gently with this person than someone who has been in the community of faith, knows what the Bible says about these things, and is still pursuing a life of unrepentance. So someone who has claimed the name of Christ for many years, but is embracing this life of sin, we should not treat the situation lightly. And that is true, not just of sins of a sexual nature, this is true of any unrepentant sin. 
And the key here is not calling your friend to immediate perfection. The biggest issue, the biggest question that needs to be answered is whether or not your friend is even willing to acknowledge this as a matter of sin that they need to start, begin to fight against. Yes, there is much suffering involved as well. This was not something that they chose to experience. And perhaps there have been many lies that have been compounding for many years and have built up so that they embrace this as a good thing. But are they willing to even have a conversation about it? Are they willing to consider that God calls them to a different path? If they're not willing to have that conversation with you, then what the Bible calls us to is to remove fellowship with that person. And this is a hard passage, but 1 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says this. He says, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This is a painful verse. And I recognize Again, this is not just sexual sin that qualifies here. There's many different things. As a Christian, if there's any clear unwillingness to address and seek repentance from obvious sin in your life, other Christians should not be relating to you as a brother or sister in Christ. Now remember, this is not, this is not speaking to someone who is genuinely struggling against this sin. Many Christians here are struggling. We're all struggling with many different types of sins. This is not, you have to be perfect in order to fellowship with the, with the body of Christ. But again, it's this question of will we acknowledge that this is sin? Acknowledge that there is a fight that needs to happen. Acknowledge that there is a call to repentance and a call to seek after Jesus in that repentance. That is different than someone who is boldly claiming that they have no sin to repent of. And so that's scenario number one. And I want to encourage you that if this is someone in your life, while you might need to, 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 to back away in some ways, I want to encourage you that you want to tell them, you want to speak to them. If you wanted to talk about this, if you are ready to have that discussion, I will be the first person to run to your aid. I'll be the first person to open scripture with you. I'll be the first person to pray with you. And I will continue to pray for you. This is painful but God will give you the grace if he calls you to that. That's scenario number one. Second scenario, your Christian brother or sister tells you that they are gay, trans, or non-binary, and what they mean by that is they're experiencing these desires and struggles, and they're very confused, and they don't know how to think about this or what God thinks about it. They, they don't want to sin against God, but they also feel these desires very strongly, and they, they, they wonder if these desires will ever leave them. If this is your brother and sister in Christ, you have a wonderful opportunity here to patiently invite them to look at scripture together and pray for God's clarity on these difficult matters. If they're willing, you may even be able to start to not only look at what the Bible says about these matters specifically, but start to dig under the surface to some of the deeper issues in their heart. And this is, um, and, and why these particular temptations have such a strong pull in their lives. And this is really what the Ministry of Harvest USA is all about and what we want to help equip the church to do. To see how underneath any type of sexual struggle, there are all other kinds of issues that are not going addressed. Uh, 
Issues of the heart, issues of desires, beliefs, worldviews, and experiences that we've had, especially in formative years, that influence the ways that we struggle. So if you're, you have the opportunity to start to dig under the surface with your friend, I want to encourage you, check out our website, check out our resources, check out our books, our curricula. Uh, you might even start with a mini book you can find on our website called Helping Students with Same-Sex Attraction. That's the second scenario. Scenario number three. Your brother or sister tells you that they are gay, trans, or non-binary, and they have no doubts about what the Bible says about acting on these desires. They know that this would be sinful. But they have adopted the label or identity of gay, trans, or non-binary. They see the behavior as sin itself, but the desires and attractions as neutral and perhaps even redeemable in some form or another. And so they may even call themselves, I'm a gay Christian. Perhaps they want help from you to keep them accountable, uh, to not do certain behaviors, to not look at pornography, to not pursue a certain relationship, or to not buy cross-sex, cross-gender clothing. Uh, But they don't want to talk about their identity. They've determined that this is who they are. And this gets tricky. Because on the one hand, we want to affirm and celebrate their desire to follow Jesus and deny themselves strong desires that remain a battle for them. They are wonderful examples of what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And these are examples that we can all learn from. Because following Jesus does come at a cost for all of us. Do you feel that cost in your life? Are there desires that you have to regularly put to death and doing so is painful? Be concerned, brother or sister, if your Christian life has cost you nothing. It will cost us all, but remember, it costs Jesus his very life and it is a free gift to those who will receive it. If your friend is committed to a life of singleness, Paul says that they have a better portion than those who will marry. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And they are incredible testimonies to the sufficiency of Christ and his body in a culture, again, that idolizes sex and romantic relationships. We can affirm all of these things in your friend as wonderful evidences of the Spirit's work in their lives producing good fruit. And you can be a great source of encouragement to your friend and accountability for temptations that they may face in life, just as they can be accountability for you in your own temptations. But we have to address the difficult matter of the Christian's identity. Is it acceptable to adopt a gay identity even if you are not acting on these desires? To do that, we have to go back to our final authority, the word of God. So to do this, I want to look at what the Bible describes, how the Bible describes and identifies the Christian. And I want to give credit to a man named Daniel Schrock for an article he's written on this issue. I'm going to borrow a scripture that he uses in that article, and that's Romans 6.11. And we'll camp out here for a while. Uh, Paul here says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's important to notice the grammar of this sentence. Paul here is not stating a fact. What Paul is doing is giving a command. 
you are to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Yes, it's true. Christians are dead to sin. But Paul is saying something more important here. He's saying that you, Christian, need to think of yourself that way. It's no good if you, if you are that way, but you don't consider yourself this way. So the next question becomes, why is Paul commanding this of the Christian? Why does it matter that we think of ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God? Well, first it matters because of how we become dead to sin and alive to God. It, and it's important to notice here the, the, the structure of the preposition. The word is dead to sin, not died for sin. So Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's probably the grammar that we typically hear, and that's right. Jesus died for the punishment, the wrath, the consequences of our sin. But Jesus also on the cross died to sin. He died to the power of sin, the power of sin in your life, so that when Jesus died, we too died with him to the power of sin, which means the power of sin in our lives as a Christian has fundamentally been broken. And it's through this union with Christ in his death and resurrection that that sin is broken. This is so important to grasp. Listen to just a few verses earlier in Romans 6, 6 through 7. And this is really describing what I just said. We also know that our old self, the sinful self, the self of death, was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then in verse 10, Paul says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here's how you need to understand yourself. When you are saved... You are united to Christ and all of the benefits of your union with Christ are given to to you. Christ in his death and resurrection means all of the benefits of his death and resurrection are now applied to you. So when Jesus died to sin, you died to sin. When Jesus rose to live to God, you also rose to live to God. This means when you become a believer, again, the power of sin is broken in your life. And you now fundamentally at the deepest core are made alive to worship and live to God. You want to follow him. You're no longer enslaved to obey sin anymore. Just as surely as Jesus died and rose, so too you in union with him have already spiritually died and risen as well. This is why the Christian must consider himself or herself dead to sin and alive to God. This is why it's a command, because it's a testimony to the gospel and what Christ has accomplished for you in his death and resurrection. So if someone says that they are a gay Christian, they are saying that this part of their life did not die with Christ and did not rise with him. It was untouched by the cross. And here's where we go back to our final authority. People will struggle with this idea because when you become saved and you're struggling with same-sex attraction, it doesn't feel like the same-sex attraction died with Christ. When you become a Christian, those feelings don't just automatically go away. Maybe they feel just as strong as they always have. And so we're left with the question of, again, where will we find our identity? Will we find it in how we feel? Or will we find it in our union with Christ? Paul's command is clear. 
understand yourself not based on your feelings, but in your union with Christ. This is what it means, brothers and sisters, to walk not by sight, but by faith. Faith says, I am dead to sin and alive to God. Your self-conception must start there. And from there, you use gospel reasoning to understand the presence of these ongoing desires, this ongoing struggle with sin in our lives. So I want to encourage you, as a Christian, you are not gay. You are not trans. You are not a porn addict. You are not an alcoholic. You are not a thief. As a Christian, you have died to those sins. You are united to Christ, and you are now a new creation. Consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Here's the key. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. What changed Not your feelings. Your feelings probably didn't change. Your track record might not have changed. What changed is that you have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what changed. So how do we understand dying to sin, the power of sin being broken, and yet still struggling with it? Well, the Bible is clear that yes, sin is fundamentally been put to death, but we are still called to put sin to death each and every day. It's because the power is broken that we even have the ability to put sin to death. Apart from union with Christ, we don't even have the ability to kill sin. Sin's just killing us. But in Christ now, we have the ability to put to death what has already fundamentally died in our lives. You could see sin in your life as possessing a type of zombie-like quality. It's dead, and yet it keeps coming back. And you are to continue to put it to death again and again. How someone understands the presence of sin in their life makes a huge difference in how they will fight it. If being gay or trans is core to your identity, core to your personhood, how much stamina will you really have to deny something that will never change? How long can you continue to fight against you? This is a recipe for eventual burnout and hopelessness. And I've heard many testimonies of young men and women who have tried to fight against homosexual desires for years, maybe decades, but all along, they fundamentally still believe that this is who I am, that I have not died to this. And after a while, it became pointless to keep fighting. But here's the key. If you are facing a defeated foe, one who's been defanged, stripped of its power, and you know one day will be completely annihilated, well, then you have every reason to get up this morning and fight against this enemy, against this foreign enemy. And praise God, I know many men and women who love Jesus and are fighting in this way and are experiencing victory. All of this is to say that if your friend falls into this category, you want to point them to Romans 6.11. 
You wanna point them to their union with Christ, to treat them as one who has died to sin and risen to Christ, to, with Christ to live to God. And you want them to believe that as well. There's so much more we could say, but again, this is uh, where the Q&A is gonna come in. And I just wanna end by saying, I recognize I've shared a lot of things today and maybe many of these things have touched a very deep place in your heart. Maybe there are things I've said that have offended you. Things that I've said that you really struggle to believe. Maybe, maybe you believe they're true, but you struggle to believe that it's good. And I wanna encourage you again, I am not the final authority. Do not believe anything I'm saying just because I said it. Our final authority is the word of God. And if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Holy Spirit to help guide you because he's the author and interpreter of his word. And the Holy Spirit's also given us his people. So, so talk to the disciple makers staff. Talk to your disciples. Talk to people who have wrestled with these issues, thought through them deeply, maybe even gone through a journey themselves. And pray. Pray that the Spirit would illuminate these things in your life. And pray to believe again that the gospel is sufficient for these things. That Jesus sees you. He knows you. And even before you did anything good in your life, good or bad, he had chosen to place his love upon you and call you his own. Look to your Savior. Let me pray for us and we'll take a break. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you know every single heart in this room this morning. I thank you that you knit each of them together intimately in their mother's wombs. And I thank you, Lord, that you have brought them here. And I thank you that you have a message for them to hear this morning. And I pray, Father, that for those who are feeling a weight, a weight of sin, a weight of guilt, a weight of shame, I pray that that would draw them to the cross. And I pray that it would be even in the light of that sin and shame that the weight of your grace would be all the stronger. That it would be in the light of our unworthiness that we see how worthy Jesus you are. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are wrestling to believe that this is a good message. That this is a loving message. That this is a true message. Lord, I pray that it would be you through your Holy Spirit, through your people, that they would wrestle, that I pray that they would know that this is a place where they can honestly wrestle, that they don't have to keep these things hidden, that they can, can, can voice doubts or questions or fears that they may have. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them perseverance. The Christian life is long. Lord, it's through many dangers, toils, and snares that we've already come. But we thank you that it is grace that has led us thus far and is grace that will lead us home. We pray this in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.